that's probably like my favorite part in all the Karate Kid movies of all time. So we're talking about mercy this morning. Good morning. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at just one verse there as our launching pad for today to talk about discovering the blessing of mercy. If you've been here the last few weeks or if you haven't, let me catch you up. We've been walking through uh, the first part of Matthew chapter 5 and we'll be going through actually all the way through chapter 7 in this first segment of this overall series called Disciple, and learning to live the life that Jesus has purposed for us, learning what it means to follow him. And the first parts of Matthew 5 have a lot to do with this foundation that Jesus is laying for you and I that describes this is what it means to follow me. These are the things that you have to put down on the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. These are not easy things, but they're essential for us to understand what it means to follow him. And so today we're going to talk about what he mentions in verse 7. In fact, let me just read that and then we'll, we'll walk off from there. And Jesus says in verse 7 of Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So in just that one phrase, as we've looked at each week, just one simple verse with just a few words describes volumes for you and I and what it, and what it means to understand how we follow Jesus. So Jesus is working through this, these things that he's saying, and it's not, Jesus is not just haphazard just throwing out thoughts that happen to come to his mind. He's laying a foundation and he's actually doing it in a sequential order to help us to understand how important it is to lay this foundation. So last week we talked about when Jesus said to, that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's the definition of righteousness, so that hunger and thirst is for him. And when we hunger and thirst for him, then we experience being filled and being satisfied. The reason mercy comes in right after that is because it is simply a test to say, if you and I are going to hunger and thirst for Jesus, who not only is the definition of righteousness, but he's also the definition of mercy, are you and I willing to embrace, embrace the same type of lifestyle that he lived out, that enveloped mercy in the way that he related to people who really didn't deserve what he was blessing them with in terms of mercy being extended to them? So this morning, understand he's laying out this foundation. But the hard thing about mercy for you and I is that mercy always comes in the context where you and I think that others deserve some kind of justice or revenge or some kind of, of mechanism to make them pay for the bad behavior that they've done in their life or towards us. That's the context of mercy. That means mercy by nature is difficult because it's something that you and I don't want to extend. We don't want to give it away. And therefore, if it's hard for us to give it away, it'll be even far more difficult for you and I to receive it, to embrace it when God wants to give it to us. And so that's why this morning we want to take some time to look at this understanding of what you and I have to be willing to give up in life in order for us to be people who extend this mercy, who be, we'd be willing to give mercy away. So let me just start by the first thing that you and I have to understand about mercy is that it will cost us. And first and foremost, it'll cost you and I the right to defend ourselves. This is not easy. Mercy is not something that's simple, that just comes like second nature to us. It's, it goes against our nature. But it's costly, and that means that you and I, in the way that we live our lives, have to come to a place where we have to stop trying to defend ourselves. And these first few points I'm going to talk through, I want you to understand, the example that we're looking at is Jesus. And it's Jesus as he walked through the process of going and dying on the cross. He demonstrates for you and I, in profound ways, what it means to be someone who extends mercy. So, in Mark chapter 14, verses 57 to 61, let me read from this passage, you'll be up on the screens, that Jesus demonstrates for you and I what it is not to defend ourselves. If anyone had the right to defend themselves, it was Jesus. 
It says in verse 57 of Mark 14, Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. That's not fair. That's wrong. Jesus was unjustly arrested and now he's on the, in this bogus trial and they brought people in that are making up stories about him. They're lying about him. And you'd think if any place in any moment defending yourself would be a good idea, this would probably be that moment. But Jesus said nothing because Jesus wasn't about defending himself. He was about looking at the people who were accusing him and falsely accusing him and having such love and compassion for them that he chose not to give them what they deserved, which was for him to somehow justify himself, for him to explain to them why they were wrong and why he was right. Because Jesus didn't come for himself. He came for the very people who were falsely accusing him. And he knew what would be the best in that context would not be for him to be about himself, but for him to be about the people and to give them what they really needed, not necessarily what they deserved. See, when you and I get to that point where we want to defend ourselves, what we're doing is we're making it about us and we're focusing on ourselves, thinking somehow that this person really needs an explanation of who I am and why I'm right and why they're wrong. But that never wins. We never win in that, that circumstance because we're just perpetuating the argument that's already started. But when we refuse to defend ourselves and to try to come alongside ourselves to make ourselves look better, or feel better, or justify ourselves, it never works because usually when you and I are finding places to defend ourselves, it doesn't matter what you and I say, the person will never ever be able to get over whatever issue they're dealing with us. They're not actually looking for the truth. They're just saying things to somehow get us to bite the bait, to react. Jesus wouldn't react because his concern was not to give them what they deserve, but really to give them what they don't deserve, which was mercy. See, we want people to pay for the wrong things that they do. The beauty of mercy is that it withholds that. It doesn't require that of people. Another story of when I was growing up watching my dad demonstrate how to live out the Sermon on the Mount, how to live out what it means to be a disciple. We had a neighbor move in across the street. He and his wife had just moved from Texas, and they had moved into a house that had been sitting vacant for a little while, and so because of that, the, the yard had gotten overgrown, and so it needed to be mowed. And so he came across the street, and introduced himself, and asked my dad if he could borrow his mower. And my dad said, sure, absolutely. So he brought his mower over and gave it to him and filled it up with gas. And so the guy disappeared for like three hours, and he's mowing away, and so three hours to me just seemed like a, a long period of time to be mowing grass, but he was, took him three hours. Maybe in Texas it takes you longer to mow grass. I don't know. So he finally comes back over, and I remember I was standing, where we were in my driveway, and my dad was standing in front of me, and he, he kind of wheels the mower back over, and he said, hey, he goes, funny thing is, he goes, your mower's broken. Three hours to figure out the mower's broken, huh? So he, he's explaining wh why it's broken. He said, yeah, he goes, it just stopped working. And he said, I was mowing along the grass and then I decided, decided to mow the ivy. And I remember when my dad asked, he said, mowing the ivy? He goes, yeah, he goes, we have mowers in Texas that will mow ivy. And he goes, I just assumed this was one of those kinds of mowers. So he goes, I mowed over the ivy and suddenly it stopped working. 
And so my dad bent down and started looking at it, and sure enough, he pulled it up and looked underneath, and basically he just snapped the blade, destroyed the blade, because what he did when he was mowing the ivy is there was a sprinkler head sticking up out of the ivy, and he rolled right over it. Well, of course the mower's broken now. And I remember sitting there, much like I did with the skateboard and much like I did with my sisters in the candy, I'm waiting for my dad to let this guy have it because he's the idiot that broke our mower. And this is what my dad says. He goes, I'm sorry, it didn't work for, well for you. He goes, I'll, I'll go get that fixed. And then he took the mower and we walked away. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this guy deserves to pay for what he's done. And I was waiting for my dad to say, well, now you're going to have to pay for this. But he never did. And the beauty of the reason he did that, I didn't see that until a few years went by. That, that was the initial contact that my dad had with this man. And because he chose to extend mercy to him and not make him pay for the mower he destroyed, that opened a door for my dad, my dad to share the gospel with this guy. If he would have immediately said, you know what, you're going to pay for this, and I'm going to tell you why you're going to pay for this, they would have had no relationship over a mower. But because he extended grace and didn't, or excuse me, extended mercy and didn't give him what he deserved, which was he was supposed to pay. And how many times in our life is that what we feel like? Especially when it comes to our own self-defense. That I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them what's really true. I'm going to let them have it. But it never works out. Because mercy is costly. And it always comes at the expense of somebody who's willing to extend it. Which leads to the second thing. The second thing about mercy and what it will cost you is that it will cost us our right to be offended. Trust me, it doesn't get any easier. I don't know what it is about us. I don't know if it's because we think it's God, our, our God-given right to be offended or it's our right as an American citizen to be offended or whatever it is. But we feel like somehow we have the right to be offended by other people. And if anybody had the right to be offended, I think it would be Jesus. Because people were extremely offensive to him. And we think that people are offensive to us. Think about the context that Jesus was in. Jesus came to one point when the Garden of Gethsemane when... when he had all these followers, and at one time he had multitudes, and then he had the twelve, and then he didn't even have the twelve because in the garden they all left. That's a great moment to be offended, isn't it? But he wasn't. In fact, think about Peter for just a moment. Peter is a, a great example of Jesus' consistency of extending mercy to a man who was extremely offensive towards him. Now, we all love Peter because Peter was much like us. He's flawed and imperfect and did impulsive things and did wrong things. But listen to Jesus' first encounter with Peter. This is Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So we know that's the start. Peter's first encounter with Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, follow me. So Peter follows. But how does Peter follow Jesus? Very zealous, very passionate, very the first one to open his mouth, the first one to jump in, the first one also to insert his foot in his mouth many times over and over again. Peter had great moments, great high moments and great low moments, and many times they came within a few verses of each other. Where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they start to go through the list, and then, then Jesus says, no, who do you say? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, you didn't come up with that one on your own, Peter. The Spirit of God lets you know who I am. Great moment. I mean, this great confession. Then you just keep reading on. And then Jesus says, And by the way, the Son of Man must suffer and die, go to the cross and give his life. And then Peter steps in and goes, No, no, never. 
You can never die. And then the worst moment of Peter's life, it's never a good day when the Son of Man says to you, get behind me, Satan. That's a bad day. That's Peter. Jesus could have been offended. It's like, Peter, you get it in this one moment, and now you're getting in the way, and you're actually letting Satan influence you to be a roadblock to my mission. And then you follow Peter on, and we all know his great denials of Jesus three times to the point where he bitterly was cursing that he never even knew Jesus. Completely betrayed, completely turned his back on Jesus. Very offensive, but what does Jesus do? Look at John 21. This will be up on the screen. When Jesus encounters Peter, Peter after his death and his resurrection, listen to what he says. It says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death that, by which Peter would glorify God. And then it says, then he said to him, follow me. Does it sound familiar? He doesn't say, Peter, you are so offensive. I am so tired of you. You really rubbed me the wrong way. And I really wanted you to follow me early on. But man, you're so messed up and so offensive. And I'm so hurt by you that you're not going to be one of my followers. You can't find that in any Bible, in any print, in any language. Because Jesus says the same thing to Peter the first day he met him, and then the same thing to Peter, one of the last encounters Peter has with him before he goes back to heaven. Because Jesus chose to never be offended, even by his closest followers, even though they were offensive. That is the ultimate model for you and I, is to choose not to be offended. See, you and I have to take an offense to be offended. We have to pick it up and grab it and hang on to it in order for it to have any power in our lives. If you were at one of the Compass gatherings, we talked about part of the process that we were walking through as a church is to live in a healthy relational context, which means we deal with things like gossip and we have a zero tolerance. So when someone comes to you and they're offended at somebody else, you're not to give them a lending ear, you're to challenge them to go to the person, which is absolutely biblical, and to make sure they deal with that with the person they've been offended by. So that we close the loop on gossip. See, you and I don't understand that the, the, the most powerful way that the enemy works is not outside, it's inside. That he causes you and I to disagree with each other or to be offended or to be... There's a little rub that grows into this huge thing and so we divide over it. Instead of focusing on God's mission, we focus on how bitter we are towards each other. And we get offended and we live in that and the enemy just sits back and he laughs. Because he doesn't have to do anything else other than to get us to turn on each other. It's just like my dog. When I was growing up, I had a dog named Vicky, a little miniature German schnauzer. And she had a lot more bike than, bite, or bark than she had bite. But she, she could bark up a storm in our backyard. And I, would, I remember she had a pattern that she would do. And I actually would go outside and watch this. It was, it was hilarious. There were two dogs that lived behind us. And we had a big fence in the back that had ivy that overgrown it. So you couldn't see through the fence, but you could hear the dogs on the other side. And frequently she would go back to the back fence and then she would stand there and she would bark once or twice. And then she would wait and to see if there's a response. And then she'd bark a couple times again. And then sure enough, the other dogs on the other side of the fence, they would start barking back at her. Then she would start pacing back and forth along the fence line and she would bark every once in a while. And you could hear them on the other side pacing back and forth. And she would do that probably like three or four minutes. But in that three or four minutes, something would always happen on the other side of the fence. The two dogs would be barking at my dog, and then suddenly they would turn on each other. And you could hear them going after each other. They were barking, and then they were growling, and you could hear, the, you could, you could hear the, the ground kind of shaking and moving and dust flying up over the fence. And the funny thing is, I kid you not, I wish I would have filmed it. Somewhere in the process, our dog would walk away from the fence. And go to some other part of the yard and not even pay attention to these two dogs on the other side of the fence that are trying to kill each other. She would start it and then she would walk away. I'm sure if dogs could laugh, she would have been laughing. 
Because these stupid dogs kept doing it every single time. And I think many times the enemy sits back and looks at the church and laughs. Says, you don't need to worry about the enemy outside. You do, because the enemy on the inside's done a good job. You and I turn on each other. We become offended. Jesus had the right to be offended, but wasn't. And I don't think, last time I checked, any of us are Jesus. And if he wasn't offended, then you and I don't have the right to be offended. Because if we do, then we lose the opportunity to extend mercy to people who may act in offensive ways towards us. Which leads to the third thing. That you and I need to understand that mercy will cost us our right to take revenge. Deep down inside, we want to get back at people. We want to make them pay. We want to one-up them for whatever they've done to us. Listen to Luke chapter 23, verse 33 and 34. It says, When they came to the place called the skull, talking about Jesus, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, this is amazing. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Can you imagine if somebody is killing you? They're executing you and not just executing you in a humane fashion. They're humiliating you. They're subjecting you to public display so that you not only experience the physical reality of the the loss of your life, but you experience this isolation and this humiliation. And this is what they're doing to them. And Jesus, instead of doing what I think I probably would have done, I wouldn't have looked to the Father and said, Father, forgive them. I would have looked to the Father and said, please fry them. That's what I probably would have done. But Jesus didn't do that. He had such compassion for the people that were killing him that he asked that the Father would forgive them, that he would extend mercy to them. Instead of taking revenge on them, in any moment Jesus could have wiped them out, but he chose not to do that. Why? Because he cared more for them than he did for himself. He was willing to extend mercy for them even though they didn't deserve it. See, if you and I would see what Jesus did is that mercy actually extinguishes things while revenge just ignites them. You and I, when we take revenge, it never works. There's a momentary feeling, oh, I got him. I made him pay. I got back at them. And there's that momentary sense of satisfaction. But that quickly goes away. Why? Because now it's their turn to take revenge on you. And it just escalates back and forth and back and forth. And the only time anybody ever wins is when someone's courageous enough to say, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to react. I'm going to extend mercy. I'm not going to keep this going. It's kind of like if you've ever watched any baseball fans. You know, it's one batter comes up, pitcher throws a little on the inside, he brushes the guy back a little bit. The next inning, when the roles reverse, the opposing pitcher does the same thing to another player on the other team. And then the next inning, the, another, the same pitcher throws again. This time he doesn't just brush a guy back, he hits him in the shoulder. And then the next inning after that, the opposing pitcher doesn't just go for the guy's shoulder, he throws for the guy's head. And people say, oh, it's just part of a game. Listen, when you're going to put a guy in a coma, it's not just a game anymore. It's called revenge. And it just, it gets, it gets, keeps going, it keeps going until what? Eventually someone gets hit in the head and then, then all the benches clear and everybody's going crazy and oh, it's just part of the game. Like hockey. I love hockey. I like to watch hockey. But it's like, it's just a part of the, part of the game where I'm going to beat some guy's head and smash his face on the ice and then shake his hand after the game's over. But I can't because he's in a coma in the hospital. See, that's what life is like for so, uh, so many times is that somebody throws the brush pack pitch and what do you and I do? Oh, I'm going to make them pay. 
I'm not going to just scare him. I'm going to hit him. I'm going to make him feel the pain. And then they respond back. And it just before you know, it's, it, it's the way that the world works. It's the way that gang members work. When one gang retaliates against another. When one nation retaliates against another. When finally someone has to say, I'm not going to respond. I'm going to extend mercy. Jesus extended mercy to people who deserved the opposite. And he calls you and I to do that too, which leads to the final point of what mercy will cost you and I, is it will cost us our right to condemn others. Our right to actually judge other people, which for some reason we think that we are privileged to do. Luke 23 again, let me read verse 40 to verse 43. Again, talking about Jesus. Jesus hanging on the cross and it says, but... The other criminal, so he's hanging between two criminals, rebuked him. They were having this dialogue across Jesus. He says, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This thief who was convicted and knew he was wrong and knew he had sinned and knew he had failed and knew he was getting what he deserved, asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. In other words, to welcome me to be a part of your kingdom, to forgive me for what I've done because I know I've failed. Jesus had every right to judge him. He could have turned and said, you know, it's a little late for fire insurance. You know, you're already hanging. You're about to die. You can't just wait till the 11th hour and somehow get in. But he says, no, I will. I will receive you. Today, I will, you will be with me in paradise. You will experience the forgiveness I extend to you. He chose not to judge and condemn a man that deserved to be judged and condemned. Mercy. It's a beautiful picture. What would it be like for you and I if we lived our lives that way? We love to judge people. We do it every single day. We do it verbally. When we pass judgment on people, we do it in our minds. When we see people and we have a snap judgment, we have a stereotype, we make judgments about people every single day. And whether we know it or not, each one of us has designed a courtroom. And we've set ourselves up as the judge of the courtroom. And we bring people in that courtroom all the time. And we make judgments about their appearance, about their behavior, about their language, about anything about what they think about their religion about how they disagree with us about where they live whatever it is we pass judgment all the time and so many times with that judgment we condemn people it's amazing how quick we are in the church to embrace the grace of god and yet in the next moment somehow choose who gets in and who gets out who gave us the right to determine who goes to heaven or hell nobody there's one person who determines that his name is jesus that's it that's actually very freeing. I don't have to determine who's in or who's out. I have to point them to Jesus and pray that they know who Jesus is and they follow him all their life so they can experience that. But I don't have to say they're in or they're out. And somehow in the church, we become really good at that. That's one of the reasons the church has got the label and it's slowly changing, but we have the label. When people think of church, they think of judgmentalness. That's part of who we are. Oh, the church always judges people. What if we focused on mercy? What if people started to think about church and didn't think about judgment and condemnation? They thought about mercy and compassion and love. Kind of like the way Jesus acted. That they thought the way Jesus acted is the way his church should act. But see, we get stuck in that. We bring people into the courtroom all the time. It's a scary thought when you and I set ourselves up as the judge. 
because we'll talk about this in a moment. If you and I set up ourselves as the judge, then we're setting ourselves up to be judged by the way we judge. That's scary. Mercy is costly, but mercy is something that is absolutely required. As we transition to the next few points here, we'll talk about the blessing of mercy. Understand this. Jesus is setting us up. All of the Beatitudes set us up for the rest of Matthew 5 through 7. Because when we get to the later chapters of these, and when we get to the later part of chapter 5, 6, and then 7, what Jesus asks of you and I, and what it means to follow him, requires you and I to live with the context of mercy. To be willing to extend mercy to people who don't deserve it. And so if you and I think it's hard now, wait till he says, listen, if you gotta go, we have to go back and start from the foundation again, you have to live in a context of mercy. You have to be willing to give up your rights. You have to be willing to not make people pay even though they deserve to pay. You have to be willing to extend mercy. So what is the, the upside? What is the blessing of mercy? The blessing for you and I and the blessing for people around us is that you and I get to enjoy peace. The blessing of mercy, extending mercy... And then receiving mercy is that you and I get to live in a context of peace. I want you just to think for a moment what it would be like for you in your life to be completely at peace internally and relationally with every single person you know. Just think about what that would feel like. That there would be no person that can come to your mind that causes you pain or causes you angst, or causes you frustration, or any person that you know of that you try to avoid because you know that they're offended at you or you are offended at them. What if you didn't have that person anymore? See, that's the context of mercy that produces peace in our life, that you and I literally can live at peace with people. It's what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, there may be people that are offensive and are going to continue to be offensive and never want to reconcile with you, but that doesn't mean that you can't live at peace with them. Because Paul says, he doesn't say live at peace as long as it depends on everybody else. He says as long as it depends on you. Living at peace. Extending mercy gives you that peace. Listen to Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3, about harmony, peace, unity. It says, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers, and by the way, that includes sisters, so ladies, you're not off the hook, live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has produced his blessing, even everlasting life. How valuable is harmony? How valuable is peace? It's invaluable. It's something that you and I die to have. It's something that we long to have. And just, just for a moment, I want you to just picture what God has purposed for us in every area of relationship, in the church, in friendships, in family, in marriage, all in our context of where we work, all those relationships God has purposed for you and I and desires for us to be at peace with people. But I want you to think, what would that actually look like? For some of you, what if you were to walk into this room on a Sunday morning and there wasn't one person that you were trying to avoid? There wasn't one person that you looked across the room and honestly thought, oh crap, they're here. Honestly. Because for some of you, that's the truth. Some of you choose to go to a 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock depending on what other person might go to that opposing service. It's true. It happens in all churches. And I know that because I speak from my own experience. I know what it is to live an extended period of time and being offense with somebody and never resolving that 
until finally God got a hold of me enough to convict me. When I was early on in ministry, when I was young and stupid and arrogant and prideful, I was working in a church and I was underneath the senior pastor and he was giving me opportunities to serve in different capacities of the church. And I really was taking for granted the things he was allowing me to do. And one Sunday morning he allowed me to preach, which is a huge privilege, but I didn't take it as that. I took it as my God-given right as a Bible college student that you're going to make me, let me preach. And I preached with that kind of angst and I preached with that kind of pride. And so about three days later, he pulled me into his office with some of the staff members and he raked me over the coals. And he just let me have it. I remember listening to him and I wanted, I defended myself. It was, it was like a three hour meeting. It was just this brawl. And I couldn't believe that he would have anything negative to say about me, you know, at age 20 or whatever it was, 19. I didn't know what I was doing, but I thought I did. And I remember I left the church. I walked away. See, the problem was I still lived in the same area. I still part of the Foursquare family. And so every time I would go to any kind of conference related to our denomination, guess who was there? This guy was there. And it was those moments. I'd walk in the room and seriously, I'd look around like, crap, he's here. Why couldn't he just miss a conference for once so I could be at peace? And that went on for a number of years. Until finally, as I really wanted to try to move forward in my own walk with the Lord, God says, you're not going anywhere. You're not moving forward. You're not leading anybody until you learn to live at peace with everybody and you're not living at peace with him. And so therefore, you need to go and make things right. So I knew the next conference was coming up and I knew he'd be there. And sure enough, I walked in the first night and there he was. So I walked over and said, hey, can you step outside with me for just a moment? And I said to him, I said, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I said, I was arrogant, prideful, hurtful. And then after the meeting in your office, I said, I picked up an offense for you. I have carried it on for years and I need you to forgive me for that. It's amazing. He turned and said the same thing to me. He asked for forgiveness. And the most amazing thing is he is one of my friends today. He's still in the Southern California district. I see him at conferences all the time. Now I don't avoid him. I go up to him and I give him a big old hug. Because there's no drama anymore. Can you imagine what a drama-free life would look like? No drama. I don't think, some of us don't even know what that would be like because we love drama. Who's talking about who and what's going on? And I'm offended this person. What if we didn't have that? We may actually have to talk about God's mission. Talk about things outside our church, outside our relationships, outside what bugs us. To get focused on what God wants us to do. But enjoying that context of peace because we've learned to live with the blessing of mercy in our life. Second thing, the blessing of mercy also means extending grace. Grace is a big thing. Churches are named after it. We love grace. We love God's grace in our life. We love this unmerited favor that God gives us. There's a problem with grace. You can't get to grace unless you start with mercy first. Because mercy is not giving somebody what they do deserve so that you can give grace, which is giving them something they don't deserve. You're withholding what they do deserve. Excuse me, I didn't say that right. Let me say that right again. Mercy is withholding ultimately what somebody deserves. Grace is is giving them what they don't deserve. You can't get to grace unless you start with mercy. We want grace, but you can't have it unless you live in the context of mercy. And that's the beauty of what God has done for us. Jesus offers us mercy because of his death on the cross, which gives the Father the ability to extend grace to us, which goes beyond just saving us from something, but saving us to something greater. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and then verse 4 through 7. He says, As for you... 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's crazy. So what God says to you and I when we choose to follow Him, He says, you're no longer a sinner, but not that you're not defined by you're not a sinner, you're now defined by the fact that you're a saint. Very different. You're not just defined by what you don't do anymore, you're defined by what you get and what you can do now. See, we are, we are saved through mercy over here, but we are saved to grace over here so that we can live out what God purposed for us. That God actually can shower us with His mercy and His grace in our life so we can experience the relationship that He desires for us. I think it was my junior year in college. I was taking my second year of Greek because I just liked to be abused by a language that was so difficult to understand. And because the majority of the New Testament is written in Greek, I thought it might be important to understand that. Greek is very difficult, and I worked really hard. And there was about 15 people in our class at the time. We all had worked really hard in second year Greek. And so we'd gone through the whole year, and we had our final coming up, our final exam. And we all, as a, as a class and as individuals, we had studied hour upon hour upon hour. I mean, grammar and vocabulary and everything, because we all want to do well and were really highly motivated. I had never studied as hard for any other exam in my entire life. So I arrive on campus for that, that day, get into the classroom, sitting there, all of us, all 15 of us are in the class, and our professor usually was always there before all of us. He would open the classroom, he would get there early, but he, wasn't, he was nowhere to be seen. And we're sitting there, and it's okay, he's not here. We're thinking, well, maybe he's sick, and we don't have to take our final today. That wasn't the truth, but, but as we're sitting there, and he's not here, we look over the side of the room, and there's a couple tables set up, and they have this beautiful continental breakfast with coffee, and muffins and orange juice and all this great stuff. And we're thinking, I remember looking at the, the, the classroom, the number on the outside of the room. Did I walk into the wrong class today? So we're all sitting there kind of scratching our heads. And then right when the class begins, our professor walks in. And we're all sitting there waiting, all stressed out. You know, none of us had slept the night before because we've been studying. And he stands in front of the class and he looks at us and he says, there will be no final today. We were so shocked. We're like, okay, what happened? Who died? What's going on? He said, no, you, you guys don't have to take the final. He said, you guys have worked really hard, and I'm going to choose, because I'm the professor and I'm in charge, I'm going to choose not to give you a final. And then he said, instead, for the next few hours, we're going to hang out and have breakfast together, and we're just going to be together. The entire class gave him a standing ovation. It was so awesome. I remember the, just the feeling of first certain doom that my life was over in this final and then this, this incredible exhilaration of like, I'm free. I don't have to do this. And then not only do I not have to do this, I get to do this. See, that's what God does for you and I. He says, no, I'm going to withhold this from you over here so I can give this to you over here. That's the beauty of what mercy sets up in life. That's the context. That's the blessing. The blessing of mercy is grace. 
And it's not something that just you and I get to have the corner on the market. We get it from God. But it's the very thing that you and I, in order for us to experience the way God wants us to experience mercy and grace, we have to be willing to extend it to other people. There are people in our world that need mercy because God has grace that he wants to pour into their life. But he's using us as the vehicle to be merciful towards them so that ultimately they can experience his grace. And then finally, the final thing that's true about the blessing of mercy is that ultimately it's about experiencing the full impact of mercy in our life. It's what Jesus said in verse 7. He says, blessed if you're merciful. If you get this, why? Because you're going to be shown mercy. And this is, this is important. It may not necessarily be important as important in this life as it will be in the next one. See, because if you and I don't get this one down, it reveals something deficient in our understanding of who Jesus is, and it calls into question, do we really know Him, and are we really following Him? Because if we're really following Him and really know Him, then mercy is going to become a part of our lives. But if it isn't, do we really understand that? Because for us to really show the mercy, we have to understand the context of mercy that God created us to live in, because we need it, because we're flawed and we're failed, and... But much like we set up our own courtroom, we all have a scorecard for life. It's a scorecard that we may use for ourselves. We also use it for other people. In fact, Jesus warns us, and when we get to chapter 7 in Matthew, he warns us about the scorecard. Because he says, do not judge. He says, or you will be judged. In fact, then he goes on and says, you will be judged according to the same measure that you use to judge other people. So just think about that for a moment. The way that you and I judge other people, what if the roles are reversed and the scorecard we're using for everybody else around us, the roles get flipped and now that scorecard gets applied to us. That's scary. Because I'll be honest, sometimes I expect absolute perfection in people and I can find a good way to judge them when they fall short. What if the roles reversed? That's scary. What if the roles reversed and it's not people doing the judging, it's Jesus doing the judging? That's a whole nother ballgame. The judge, the one that has the right to judge, the one that will judge us all. So how can you and I get to the end of our life or to get to the moment where Jesus comes back and there's a judgment and we're standing for him and our entire life has been described by condemning other people, judging other people, being offended by other people, and then we come before the judge and say, have mercy on me. Do you think he's really going to extend mercy to us? I don't think so because if we can't find a way to live in the context of mercy in this life, then maybe we really don't know Jesus. Maybe we haven't fully experienced the depth of His mercy to the core of who we are. Maybe we haven't come to grips with what it means to judge people and what it does to them. Just think about for a moment, what does it do in the life of somebody else when either to their face or behind their back, you pass judgment on somebody? It can destroy their lives. I remember when this actually hit me when I was coaching basketball in Ventura and I was coaching third graders at the time, but we were doing a tryout for like third, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And the the league had a great system set up so that the the tryout was more of a blind tryout, which means you you didn't know necessarily the names of the players, but you had to rate them. And then that way they put it into a computer and no team could get stacked because they would value players on a scale of, of, of really one to five, five being top, one being the bottom. And so when they'd run the kids through these tryouts, they'd go through three different stations, and one would be a scrimmage, they'd have to play a game, another would be passing and dribbling, another one would be shooting, and they would get rated on a scale of one to five in each of those categories. They asked me to be a part of that, to be a judge. 
And I thought, this is really cool. I get to evaluate talent. And then as I started to do that, I started to watch these little third graders come through. And some of them don't even know what a basketball is, but dad really wants them to play really bad. So I'm having to evaluate these kids. And I remember, I didn't even really know their names. I knew the number on the back of their jersey that got pinned there. And I knew what they were trying to do, but I had to evaluate them. And I realized halfway through, I didn't like doing this. Because I could see that some of these kids were trying really hard. But it didn't matter how hard they tried, they weren't going to get above a two. That was it. And if all the other judges rate them that way, their sum total of their three stations would be a six out of 15. And every kid ended up kind of knowing their number because, you know, you weren't supposed to tell them their number, but everybody found out what their number was. But I remember thinking as I was doing it, I was thinking, I am determining, at least for this season, whether this kid's going to like playing basketball or if he's going to hate it. If he's going to feel good about himself or if he's going to be destroyed by the tryout. I didn't like that. Because it wasn't, when I saw their little faces, it was more than just a number. It was a person. And my ability to judge them had an impact on what would happen, at least in the next year of their life. What if you and I saw that in the way we lived our life? That when we saw people, we actually saw human beings. We saw people that are broken, just like us. We saw people that maybe, especially people who haven't come to know Jesus yet, they haven't understand God's grace and His mercy. They haven't understood the need for forgiveness in their life and the brokenness of their life. What if we saw them the way God saw them and said, I want to extend mercy instead of seeing them through judgmental eyes with a scorecard that they can never live up to? If we chucked out the scorecard, in fact, not even throw it out, what if we turn around and handed it to God and let him take care of the judging? Let him take care of that. Then you and I could actually experience mercy. But mercy is only going to be extended through us if we're willing to embrace it from God, not become a dam or a roadblock or a barrier and allow it to go right out of us. It's not going to be, it stops. The flow stops. Well, I want to be merciful. Then be merciful because if you and I are not merciful, guess what happens? The flow stops. And why would God be merciful to us if we're not going to extend that mercy to others? I'm going to ask you just as we conclude, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because there's a couple points of response that I think are appropriate for us this morning. Not easy, and not an easy message, but here's the thing. If you're not merciful, God's merciful. If you're thinking right now, oh man, I'm going to beat myself up because I'm not merciful, stop. Because God's not going to, because that would be the opposite of mercy. But I know what God is doing in these moments, and even in the first service, is that He's wanting us to come to a place where we understand mercy... We choose to give up our rights for the things that we really think that we are, we can demand and we can expect. So that we become people who extend that mercy so that God can pour His mercy out on us that leads to His grace. But I want to highlight just a couple of things that I think are important to respond to. First, there may be some of you, and, and even as I described, being willing to give up your rights. Being willing to extend mercy. Being willing not to take up an offense. That as I described those things, and even as we read about Jesus and Him and His response to people, you know in that moment there's one or two or three or maybe even more than that, I don't know, but there's people that you know that when you think of them, there's pain. There's offense. There's anger. There's angst. There's frustration. And today God is saying, extend mercy. 
And ultimately, the goal of mercy is it creates a context for grace that leads to reconciliation in relationships. And so what God may be saying to you today is that person who's caused you angst, that person that you've been offended by, is the very person that you need to go to and you need to ask forgiveness. And the forgiveness you ask is because you chose to take up an offense and now you're setting it down. And even though you can give ten reasons why that person's wrong and you are right, God says, let it go and extend mercy. But then I think I really felt this in this first service and I believe it's true in this service as well that some of us don't really understand mercy because we've found our way into a lifestyle and a rhythm that functions not on mercy, but functions on shame and condemnation and guilt. That our context of relating to God is that when we blow it and when we mess up, we don't expect to experience mercy. We expect to be judged and condemned on the spot. And therefore, when we fail, we, we live with this weight on us. And that weight is called condemnation. And that weight does not come from God because the Bible tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That comes from the enemy. And what condemnation brings and what shame brings is it pushes you away from God. Because you come to grips with your unworthiness and you live in that. On the other side... The Holy Spirit brings conviction. And conviction pushes you forward into mercy and into grace because God desires to be in relationship with you. For some of you today, you need to realize that when you fail, that God, because what Jesus did on the cross, has chosen to extend you mercy and He has taken that failure and that sin and He has nailed it to the cross. So no longer do you need to feel shame and guilt. That doesn't justify our behavior, but it sets us free from the impact and the penalty and the judgment of it. So this morning, what I'm going to ask you to do is, in, is as I close in prayer, I'm going to ask you that you would, first for the first category, that you go this week and you make it right with the person that you know you're offended with. And the second category, that even right now, what you might need to do, even today or this week, is that you might need to, because you've lived in a context of shame and condemnation, and God wants you to live in a context of grace and mercy, you may need to sit down with a friend and confess your sin. Not that you're somehow apologizing to them, but that you are confessing the things that you feel guilt and shame over in your life. There's something powerful about confession that breaks the power of our guilt and our shame because the Bible tells us in 1 John that if we confess our sin, we speak it, we say it, we acknowledge that we're broken, that God is faithful and just and He will forgive us and He will cleanse us and purify us from everything that is wrong, everything that is unrighteous in our lives. But it comes through the power of confession. So you may need to find a friend that you can trust to say, listen, this is what I'm living. This is the cycle of guilt and shame I'm living. I need to get it out because I want God to bring freedom in my life. Lord Jesus, I thank you for mercy. I thank you that you were willing to go to the cross and you actually paid the price for our mercy. It cost you everything. And that's why, Lord, we know when we follow you that you ask us to do the same, that we would be willing to incur the cost of mercy for others. So, Lord, in our lives, help us to see people the way you see them. Help us to 
destroy the courtroom that we've created for others or discard the, the scorecard and leave the judging and condemning up to you. That's you in eternity. That's not our, our job. But that, Lord, we would live as people who are merciful. And living as merciful people, we would be people who would experience the context of your mercy in our lives. And that flow would continue to run its way through us into the lives of people so that someday, Lord, the church would not be known for judgment and condemnation, but the church would be known for mercy, grace, and compassion. We thank you, Jesus, for your work in us today. In your name, amen. Amen.